Welcome back to Venture Studio, and welcome back to our fantastic two-part interview with Naval Ravikant of AngelList. If you missed part one, go check it out at VentureStudio.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Venture Studio is the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 60-plus companies and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and VCs who make up New York's entrepreneurial ecosystem. As always, I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. In part one of this interview, Dave and Naval talked about AngelList, syndicates, and startup funding. In part two, things got quite a bit more philosophical. In this interview, Dave and Naval cover power dynamics and haters in venture capital, the American political system, everything from Trump to Bernie to Hillary, the disruption of the wealthy elite, and of course, South Park. And with that, let's head on up to the Venture Studio office for part two with Naval Ravikant. In the office, baby. Going up. People are very supportive of what you're doing. A lot of people in the ecosystem see this unbundling, this this democratization, the ease at which this stuff can be set up, these syndicates, etc. And then you have a, a smaller percentage that are quite critical from the background. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you yeah. look upon that? You're a philosophical guy, but you know <laughs> people are taking shots at you from the sidelines yeah. and crit- critiquing these new models. How do you think about it? I mean, critics are always there, right? There's always yeah. somebody who's saying you can't do that. The world yeah. is full of that. And, yeah. and we, all, we, we all know what's going on in those people's heads. Right. It's, a, it's, it's it, they're not trying to be helpful. Right. <laughs> There's no such thing as the helpful critic from the sidelines taking shots at you. And then they'll hide behind things like investor protections. But, you know, our returns are there. We're making returns. Uh, these backers and the institutional funds would not be coming on. Believe me, nobody right. commits half a billion dollars without checking your returns. So, uh, you know, I'd say let, let the market play it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the critics, I, I don't know. I mean, I just go find something better to do with your time. <laughs> don't, don't you have anything real to do? Don't you have anything to build? Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, don't you have anything positive to contribute to this world? And I'm sure you do. So go do that, right? Go, go lead by example. Don't lead by criticism. So I don't, I try not to be critical. I, and everyone is, right? It's, it's hard to manage that within yourself. But I find that when I am being critical of somebody else, uh, it's, it's a form of self-conflict. It's something that's attacking my ego uh, or something that's attacking maybe the way I make a living or someone that's contradicting the choices I've made. Uh, and so I'm lashing out in anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a great old saying that, like, you know, anger is a, is a hot coal you hold in your hand while you're waiting to throw it at somebody. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I always like that. So I'm, I, I don't even pay attention to them. Right. Uh, look, it's a it's a it's a grand experiment that seems to be working so far in a in a certain part of the industry. Uh, if it continues to work, we'll continue doing it. If it doesn't work, we'll stop doing it. Uh, you know, everyone who's involved is sophisticated and adult. Some people are making quite a bit of money doing it. Some people will probably lose money, like happens in any market. Yeah. Um, yet, when someone loses money trading on the Nasdaq, we don't shut the Nasdaq down. Exactly. Uh, and when you look at the public markets, most of the trading that goes on in the public markets, 99% is secondary trading, right? You could argue that's more casino-like. That's people just trading, and it's good because it creates liquidity in those markets. But nevertheless, it's secondary trading. The primary offerings in the public markets are very small and far and few between. And primary offerings are critical because they provide capital to enterprises to go out and build. And what we're basically doing is we're a purely primary market. There's no, no secondary trading going on. So we are, we are providing primary capital to young 
uh, lifeblood companies, you know, who are yeah. startups who are making the world a better place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the funny, the funny thing is the, the criticism in this industry, one of the things I find very disingenuous about it is that criticism in this industry is not as much driven by merit as it's driven by power. Yes. Uh, and so what happens is that whenever you try anything new, the powerful attack you. And then uh, when that new thing itself becomes successful and powerful, they stop attacking you. Not because they come back and they say, oh, well, it turned out it worked, but it's because you're powerful now. <laughs> so I, I see this happen with all the accelerators, where the accelerators movement and the few, first few accelerators, including YC, used to get attacked. Now they don't get attacked because they're powerful. Uh, same way the new venture funds like Andreessen and First Round, all those people used to get attacked. Now they don't get attacked. Uh, and uh, it's, just, it's, it's silly, but it's about power. Yeah. Uh, there's a mob mentality to it. Um, so, yeah, so there are still people who kind of whisper about us behind closed doors, but I think now they're becoming cognizant of the fact that we're on nearly a thousand cap tables. We have hundreds of angel investors out in the field. We have lots of people using the platform who are happy and doing deals. Uh, and if you're going to attack the way that they're making a living, well, these people are upstream of most venture capitalists. So you're not going to see their deals. And, and every smart venture capitalist, all the good old school ones, you know, you go to Sequoia, you go to Kleiner, you go to, uh, you know, you, you go to any of the top old school VCs and they stay out of the fray, yep. right? They just stay out of the fray because they know that even though the industry has some rules, even those rules are subject to change. Um, you know, and, and things do change. The dynamic industry, who's to say that the tech industry is going to change, but somehow venture capital is going to be unaffected. That's just silly. Yeah. So I think the smart VCs just sort of say, you know, let's see if it works. We'll, we'll give it a shot. We'll see if it works. Yeah. Um, Look at yeah. this sage, mellow, philosophical approach. It, make, it makes so much sense. I have to say, you know, you really are like a quiet revolutionary. What you've done here in I don't know six seven years uh, is quite profound, and and I want to explore that a little bit with you. You recently wrote this incredible piece called American Spring mm -hmm. on Medium, yeah, and you talked about how, and I recommend everyone read this. I'm going to quote from a, from a few lines there in a minute. It, yeah. It's basically you talk about the unbundling of the elite power structure of the political landscape and of the media, of the mainstream media. I'll read some quotes. You say, the elites, a plutocracy of the top few percent, bought the parties. So cheaply, in fact, that they bought both. One weakness. The presidency is a single office of great visibility and power, directly and democratically elected. One person, one vote. Regardless of education, ethic, breeding, knowledge, achievement, is everyone actually really equally qualified to vote, the elites wonder? Today, it's a different world. YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook let one human broadcast to billions without permission, without censors, without delay. And you talk about Bernie Sanders. You talk about Trump. Uh, very prescient. Um, in the last few days, Trump won the Republican nomination. Uh, something is going on here in politics. Talk to me about that phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, generally, I, I try and stay out of politics because I think po politics is the exercise of power without merit. Yes. And uh, and it, it's a spectator sport. Politics is, you know, people form tribes, often geographically based, often based on where their friends are. And then they drum out anyone who's not politically inclined with them. It's a very tribal behavior. And then they cheer people on. And, and the whole thing is kind of mindless. Uh, and in a purely rational utilitarian sense, you know, uh, voting is a free rider problem. Like purely rational people don't vote. 
So in some, in some sense, there's always emotion involved in politics uh, and a lot of emotion. So it's a very difficult topic to deal with. And when you read political commentators, I would say 99% of them are blind. And they are blind because they've picked a side, because they want to see what's going to happen. Uh, they, they want something to happen a certain way. And so therefore, they're drowning in confirmation bias. Um, so if you want Bernie to win, you're, you're, reading, you're reading all the Bernie news outlets. You want Trump to win, you're reading all the Trump news outlets. You want Hillary to win, you're, winning, you're reading all the Hillary news outlets. And, and you're cheering your tribe along while you kind of hurl insults and, uh, and tomatoes and eggs at the other tribe, right? So I find politics, it's a total minefield to walk into that. It's a minefield, uh, and, and let's caveat that, that yeah. we're not talking about any candidate in particular. We're, we're not. Talking we're talking about a phenomenon. Let's, exactly. To anyone who wants to yeah. throw a hot coal at us, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's, let's be I mean, very clear that yeah, we're not endorsing yeah, the candidates. Not, we're talking yeah. about the phenomenon. Yeah, that's not a disclaimer. That's basically saying that if you want to understand what's going on, then you have to look at it with no preconceived judgments. Right. Um, and that I think that's generally true in life. That's not just true in politics. That's true in business when you're making a decision. That's true in falling in love. It's, it's the, the more of a preconceived notion you go in with, the less you're going to actually see what's happening. So with that mindset, that's why I, I approach this and I say, okay, Essentially, the two-party system that we run run under, it, it's a conspiracy to monopolize the vote, to monopolize the vote. Originally, the founding fathers, I think, were against the idea of political parties, but they couldn't figure out a way to stop political parties without also restricting freedom of speech. And freedom of speech is critical. It underlies the entire foundation of democracy that we have today, or the republic that we have today. Uh, there's a reason why it's the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights, not the second or the third or the fifth. Without freedom of speech, you can't enforce anything else for the people. So freedom of speech is fundamental. The problem is we have a first-past-the-post system. In other words, it's a winner-take-all. If you get 51% of the voters, then you get the entire presidency. So then, of course, you get political parties, and political parties are formal conspiracies to monopolize the vote. And you can't have three, because the moment you have three, number two and number three are under pressure to gang up to beat number one, because the number one always takes everything. It's a winner-take-all. So therefore, we're in a winner-take-all system with, with uh, freedom of speech, so you end up with two political parties. Well, you would think that these two political parties would represent a lot of choice, but they don't. If you look at them curiously, they differ on the details, but they don't differ on the broad things. What do they agree on? Uh, the big political parties, they both agreed upon bailing out the banks, paying trillions of dollars to the banks to bail them out for gambling losses, essentially. Both political parties agree on fighting foreign wars. They both want to bomb Libya. They both want to bomb Syria. They both want to uh, bomb Afghanistan. They both want to bomb Iraq. They both want to intervene. So these are, these are muscularly, militarily strong political parties. They both agree on free trade. And free trade, any, any competent economist will tell you that free trade makes almost everybody better off, except the local people who lose their jobs in the transition. <laughs> and that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people sitting out there in the middle class in the Midwest and the Rust Belt. So there is, there is a reallocation of wealth in free trade, even though you may be overall better off, there is a reallocation within constituencies and groups. So, and both parties agree that there should be no term limits that they should be able to hold office for as long as they want outside of the presidency, which is constitutionally restricted. Uh, both parties agree that they should take money from wealthy donors, and there should be super PACs, and there should be labor union contributions and all kinds of stuff like that. So what, and, and both parties, you know, they, they actually are closer on the immigration stance than, say, Trump is. Mm -hmm. um, so what you're ending up with is you're ending up with a scenario on the, that, oh, uh, both parties agree there should be no wealth taxes. 
both parties agree should be income taxes. Income taxes keep up in the commerce uh, down, but they keep the wealthy elite, uh, but the wealth taxes are, hit the wealthy elite. So you're ending up with a situation where the wealthy elite, and it's not a formal conspiracy. Heck, I'm part of it, <laughs> right? Uh, it's not a formal conspiracy, but because they send their kids to the right schools and they read the right magazines and go to the right cocktail parties and they make the right campaign contributions, they influence the right people, they just ended up running the country. And they've ended up running the country for their benefit. And essentially, the, the Republicans and Democrats only differ on which elitist policies are better uh, and the Democrats also have a very strong platform of, uh, amongst the people who are sort of, uh, you know, maybe lower class by, by economic definition. Mm -hmm. um, and what you're finding is what made America great originally, I think, was the middle class. It has one of the strongest, largest middle classes in the world. Uh, and income inequality and all those things have gotten more difficult. So now the question is, you know, what, what do you do? How, do? how can you change the parties? And the reality is the parties aren't changing. The parties are passing around the presidency like it's a crown <laughs> or it's a scepter. And you can tell that because a suspiciously large number of the presidents all share the same last name. You know, we had a Bush, then we had another Bush, then we were about to have a third Bush. Well, what are the odds that out of 300 million people in the country, that three of the 300 million most qualified to be president on a pure merit basis just happen to be from the same family? Uh, what are the odds that the best president happens to be a wife of the former president? So that, I think, people start to see. They start to realize that, yeah, this is not – the system is rigged. There's a path dependence here. Uh, who you are and where you come from matters much more than what you can do. Uh, and so what you're seeing is, and so the presidency is a democratically elected office by the constitution. So it cannot be fully corrupted or taken over by an, an elite. And again, not a conspiracy, but just sort of a system yep. that has formed. Uh, and so in that system, the way it's protected though from the masses is by two things. One is it's really expensive to run for president. It costs billions of dollars. So if you cannot get billions of dollars, then you can't be president. And therefore, and because you couldn't get billions of dollars without the elite supporting you, all the presidential candidates are elitist. So that's number one. Um, and number two is the media. You can't get the word out because the media is all owned by very complicit. rich individual. Yes. It, yeah, it's complicit in, in, but again, not a formalized conspiracy sense. You could argue, okay, Rupert Murdoch owns Fox, so it's complicit there. But also in an implicit sense that journalists want to go to parties with rich people and they want to kiss up to them and they want to go, you know, and, and, they, and they're sort of went to the same schools with them and same so crew. forth. Mm -hmm. It's the same crew, exactly. So those are the two those are the two locks. Those are the two gates behind which the presidency was protected. And the internet blew the whole thing up. And I think this is literally the last election in which we will see any elite candidates. So right now you're seeing two anti-elitist candidates who are Bernie and Trump, who actually have a very similar platform with each other. Trump is very liberal on social issues, although he can't say that to the Republican Party. Uh, Bernie's obviously very liberal on social issues. In economic issues, they're actually both anti-trade. They're both anti-bailout. They're both anti-war. They differ in immigration because Trump's voters think that jobs are a zero-sum game and illegal immigrants are stealing their jobs. And Bernie's voters think that money is a zero-sum game, that wealth is a zero-sum game, and the rich stole their money. So they differ on the details, but they're actually much more aligned than they are separate, although they have completely different styles. Um, but 
the fascinating thing that's going on is that Bernie is crowdfunding. That's probably the biggest news. Bernie has outraised Hillary every step of the way, and he's done it with tiny checks from lots of small donors. That means that money in politics is dead. Now, Trump is doing it by self-financing, although he's about to switch over to donor or crowdfinancing. I don't know which one. That'll be interesting to watch. But essentially, the money barrier is down because Bernie can crowdfund or Trump can self-fund or Bloomberg can self-fund. And now the media barrier is down because of social media. So the biggest news of this election, other than Bernie's crowdfunding, has been how useless TV ads have been. The TV ads haven't done a darn thing. And then on top of it, it doesn't matter what the mainstream media says. The New York Times, Vox, Atlantic, they're screaming at the top of their lungs. The world will end if you elect Trump. You know? And everybody except Salon is saying, the world will end if you take Bernie over Hillary. He's unrealistic. He's a socialist. It's not going to work. And the voters aren't listening. All the passion and all the enthusiasm is with the insurgents. It's with Bernie and Trump. And so what you're going to see is this is just the beginning. 2016 is the last election in which the elites even have a chance. I think starting in 2020, every major candidate will be crowdfunded. Every major candidate will be social media driven. It'll be Snapchat. It'll be Twitter. It'll be Facebook. It'll be their Instagram. It'll be their successors that will be driving the winners. And the thing that I really hope is going to happen, my personal hope is, again, I'm not that political. I think they're all crooks, to be honest. I think all of them are crooks. Yeah. I, don't want, I don't think any one human being should be ruling 300 million people mm-hmm. and trying to tell them what to do. It's just they're, they're too different. They're still, people are just too different. Uh, so I'm more of a believer in federalism and local government. But anyway, that's, that, that's an aside. But what I really hope will happen is we will start seeing transparency in politics. So who is going to be the first candidate who is going to basically say, you know what, instead of running it as a reality TV show, I'm going to turn this all into reality TV. I'm going to wear a camera on me 24-7. I'm going to televise every single meeting so you know there's no corruption going on. So you know every time I'm talking to the donors what I'm saying. Not just transcripts, but live streaming video, YouTube channel, tune in and watch the president 24-7. That's what I'm looking for. It's the GoPro candidate wearing a GoPro on their head. But now you could say that's unrealistic. It's actually not. If it's a national security issue, just delay the tape by four years. Wait till I'm out of office. So if I have to make a decision, do we go after Osama bin Laden over here or not, we're still going to record that meeting. We're just going to release the uninterrupted, uncensored video broadcast footage four years from now. Imagine what that does. Now that means is every time some secret trade deal is being negotiated, they can't in the back room say, well, just do this for our constituency. Like, well, the American people are watching. What do you want me to do for your constituency? Make the case to them. So it gets rid of all corruption in politics instantly. And I think we're going to see some of the populist candidates of the future running on this platform. Plus, I think voters, you know, voters are watching West West Wing. Voters are watching House of Cards. They want to see the revolution, right? They want to see it televised. They want to know, what are you hiding from me? Uh, At the end of the day, you know, if you look at uh, if you look at cops wearing body cams, right? Cops who have to wear body cams and the stop and frisk Mm -hmm. searches. Well, obviously, the people are better off because now the cop isn't going to beat up some poor uh, person, you know, because they look bad uh, or get them or frame them or, you know, it it makes it harder for the cases where the cop shoots the black guy in the back because he's, you know, says he's running away. But really, it was set up right now. Your body cams, that helps. Well, it helps the cops, too. 
because cops themselves have to worry about people falsely suing them or accusing them. So it makes the system better for everybody. And what is the presidency but the top cop? The top cop should be wearing a body cam, absolutely. If you give one monkey power over 300 million other monkeys, including the power to kill them, to torture them, to bomb them, to tax them, to drag them out of their homes, to make them rich, to make them into a living God, if you give them that power, then of course you have to watch them. You have to watch them more carefully than you watch anyone else. So I think that where this heads, where I, ho- where I think this heads is crowdfunding, plus social media means that no more elite candidates. You will never see another Clinton or Bush run for office in the future. They're gone. Uh, You will not see any political dynasties in the future. They're gone. Uh, But on top of that, I hope we will have transparency. I hope we will have term limits. Um, And I think we're going to start seeing uh, movements and platforms emerge within the parties that are uh, currently anti-elite policies. We're going to see anti-elitist policies becoming mainstream. And it's scary for those of us who are elites, and I'm definitely in that category. But at the same time, I think it's a fascinating f- phenomenon to watch. Technology is taking us from being a republic into being a true democracy. And that's a tough transition. Yeah, you you know, absolutely fascinating. You say you're an elite, but you're really a revolutionary. Uh, <laughs> I've always let me been, tell you, you I have an it, underdog yeah? mentality is the problem, you right? Really I think like an underdog regardless of where well, I am. Look what you've life. done. I mean, look what you've done in, in, in venture capital. I mean, the first phase there also was transparency. I remember not too many years ago, at least here in the New York ecosystem, when people used to come to me and say, hey, someone offered me money. Someone, you know, an entrepreneur, someone said, so this investor, he offered me some money. He's going to invest my company. I would say, who, who are they? Yeah. I'd say, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, look exactly. them up. There was no place to look them up. What deals have they been in? Speak right. to the other uh, entrepreneurs that, that uh, he or she has backed. Well, I don't know. There was no way to do that. So the first layer of AngelList was transparency. Now, That's right. Let me tell you something. Now, the first question you say is, well, show me their AngelList portfolio, please. And they say, oh, okay. Then they go get it. Mm-hmm. And you say, oh, here it is. And then you go through it. You understand. You say, okay, they've invested in these companies. Let's go talk to the entrepreneurs that they've backed. And, and then we know something about them. So really, that was the first layer, that transparency. And, and it's going to keep going. Way. I mean, transparency is the way of the world now. Uh, you look at how transparent kids are. You know, privacy will exist, but we're heading into a completely different world. Uh, there will be no such thing as physical transparency because there will be cameras everywhere. The tech revolution is going to reduce the price of cameras to pennies. And just like there's a digital watch everywhere, there'll be cameras everywhere. And our kids will be wearing cameras and their glasses and their lapels everywhere. So there will be no such thing as physical privacy. That hasn't even sunk in yet. But what we're going to have is we'll have digital privacy thanks to encryption and anonymity. But then people become monsters when they're anonymous online, <laughs> right? Just go like one of my big problems with being on social media, and I've broken every social media addiction now except Twitter, and even that I would love to get away from, although I'm very addicted to it. Uh, it the, the big problem with social media is people say all kinds of terrible things to other people online that they would never say to another human being's face in person. There's something about having that distance, that shield that just allows kind of your inner monster to come out, right? So the policy I try to follow on Twitter, which I don't even follow all the time, but I try to, is I will try not to say anything to anyone on Twitter that I wouldn't say to them if they were sitting right in front of me. That said, I'm a very outspoken, obnoxious person, so I do say a lot of weird things to people sitting in front of me. But 
it's still quite different than what goes on on Twitter. I mean, I, I've gotten this habit now where otherwise very civilized people, uh, I see them put out a tweet that I think is just like abusive against anyone, someone, I just block them. Yes. It's just like I don't want to deal yeah. with that person. I mean, Naval, I, I don't know how much driving you do, but it's the same thing. You talk about shields. People, when they get yeah. behind the shield of that car, I mean, it's outrageous. Absolutely. I mean, if they You're, did that on the street or waiting in line, just like elbowing yeah. you and knocking you over and cutting you off, I mean, right. you have fights breaking out all over the city. You're absolutely right. That is a great example of how anonymity in the real world turns otherwise civil human beings into monsters. Yeah. No, it, it's a thin line, my friend. Um, so listen, we're, we're catching you in, I don't know, how you are early 40s now. This is the mellow, philosophical, wise wise man uh let's go back to to the origins because i do i do know yeah. i do know that you couldn't have been like this growing up yeah tell us a little about how you grew up in new york coming here i think when you were nine years old to to the u.s etc yeah we were we were poor immigrants uh my dad came here he was a pharmacist in india but his degree uh wasn't accepted here so he was in a hardware store uh, not a great upbringing, you know, family split up. Uh, but, but my mom, my mom is a gem and, you know, my dad meant well, so it all worked out okay, but essentially raised myself a lot. So I went to Stuyvesant, which was in a magnet school in New York city. It's, it's an amazing shining jewel of a school. That's where I got my real education, uh, math, science. And, and of course you really get educated by your peers. So in Stuyvesant, I was surrounded by all these brilliant kids, uh, very precocious, um, after that, went to Dartmouth, studied computer science and economics. Uh, and I, I wanted to be a scientist originally. I love science and I love books. So I, I grew up reading a lot. Um, my mom used to use a library as a daycare center, uh, which was fantastic. So I, was, I always had my nose buried in books and I wanted to be a scientist. Uh, but, you know, just having come from a background of, uh, I wouldn't say extreme poverty, but definitely, definitely not, you know, not the elite side. Uh, I was I was also keenly cognizant that I wanted to take some make some money. I wanted to take care of my family and mother and loved ones, and and I just didn't want to be in a situation where a lack of money would would create uh, suffering. So I definitely did grow up with an extremely underdog mentality. Yes. Sort of the the you know I'm going to do whatever it takes and I'm going to fight the world if I have to and I'll resist and I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to solve this problem. Uh, and I, and so the intersection of science and money is technology. Uh, and, and I love technology and I love gadgets. Uh, so I came out to Silicon Valley, um, joined uh, a company here called At Home Network. Didn't, didn't last long. I've never really had a boss for long. Um, and uh, went and started my own companies. And one was uh, helped some guys start an optical amplifier company, helped another guy start a 3D graphics company, which then spun out Keyhole Systems, which got sold to Google, and it's not Google Earth. Uh, then I started Epinions, which is my dot-com. Uh, which would have done well, except that it was during the crash. So there was a merger, there was a fiasco, and yes, there, was yes, a, yes. there was a there was a lawsuit. <laughs> we and, won't get into yeah. it, but yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yeah. Yes. I mean, you can read it. it's ancient history. I'm over that. Right. But there was there was a time when I was struggling to, uh, you know, quote unquote, be successful. Uh, and then after a while, you know, I broke out of that, and I just re and I started just taking a. I became a lot more independent after that. Probably the best thing that happened to me. Uh, I would say all the great things in life come from suffering, right? Because you, you're never going to do anything different than what you're doing now until you really suffer. Uh, one of my favorite philosophers has this great insight where he says, suffering is that moment when you see everything, when you see things the way they actually are. Mm. You can no longer deny it. You can no longer say, oh, no, she still loves me or he still loves me. You can no longer say, oh, I still have the money or I'm still going to win or I'm still going to be healthy. Suffering is when it all 
when you see reality the way that it truly is. And so when you see that, then you change. And so I've been fortunate and unfortunate because they'll just go together enough to suffer a few times in my life. Uh, you know, once over money, once over uh, love, once over feeling like, uh, you know, I had built something but yet still lost everything. Yes. And, and the beauty of those uh, experiences is that they make you m much more confident in who you are and what you want as opposed to what the world has been telling you this whole time that you should want. Uh, and so somewhere, uh, you know, the greatest gift to me was somewhere around 2005, uh, I just became completely independent. Uh, and, I, and not in a financial way, but in a way where I just said to myself, I am going to decide what's best for myself. And I will take other people's inputs uh, and I will see what the world has to teach me and offer. But at the end of the day, there are no mentors, advisors, superiors, adults. Everyone's wow. making it up as they go along. And it's different for everybody. The answer is different for everybody. It's like, you know, when, when you're young, when you're, when you're a child, you ask questions like, hey, mom, what's the meaning of life? Is there really a right. Santa Claus? What happens when he dies? And, and, yeah, and mom says, just, just don't ask those questions. They don't have answers, right? right? right. It's too painful. <laughs> and then as you get older, you start asking questions like, well, who do I marry? And am I going to make money? And what do I do? And all that stuff. And those are decent questions and they can have answers. But I actually think those original questions you asked as a child, those are actually the most interesting questions. And the reason to ask those questions again as an adult is because it turns out they do have answers. It's just everyone has a different answer. It's a personal answer. Meaning of life does have an answer. It's different for everybody. And you have to figure it out yourself. Uh, you know, what are my values? Uh, you know, wh why am I working hard? Why should I struggle? Is happiness important uh, to me? How do I find peace? You know, those kinds of things. Is there death? Is there God? All those questions should be asked, but they should be asked personally and quietly. And your answer doesn't apply to other people. It's your own, it's your own answer. So when I got into this mode of realizing that I was truly independent and truly alone in this world, because you come into this world alone and you leave alone, and all you do is you kind of communicate through these very hazy words and boundaries trying to get emotionally connected to another human being. But you're fundamentally alone in this world. And that's both the beauty and the tragedy of it. Uh, and, you know, no one else can see and feel what you have seen and felt from your point of view. And no one ever will. And that's beautiful. But if you, if you view that as I'm lonely, it can also be tragic. But in my case, I took it as a source of strength and power. Uh, and I use that to say, I'm just going to figure everything out for myself. So yeah, so Venture Hacks was figuring out how to negotiate VC terms for myself and then telling them to the world, even though people said, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, Angel List was about saying, well, okay, the world today hoards deals and, and hides things from founders. What if we just opened all that up? Even the recruiting side of Angel List it's free. We expose salaries. We oppose equity. We expose equity. We do direct matching. There are no recruiters involved. We break so many rules about the recruiting business. That's what people don't realize. What's unique about AngelList is we break assumptions that other people just accept. So, of course, that's going to lead to criticism. But how else are you going to discover what's new and how else are you going to discover what works for the world? So even in my politics, you know, I break assumptions. You can find me extreme left in certain situations. Like, I don't think there should be private ownership of property. <laughs> like, I think the concept is a fiction. Uh, you know, the idea that you own a piece of land because your great-grandfather got there first with weaponry 
and now you get to sit on that land forever. I mean, that's a that that seems very outmoded to me. Uh, I mean, by that right, you know, there should be probably some Native Americans who who have a right and so on. So essentially, all private property res, uh, uh, rests on violence uh, deep down. That said, I'm a staunch capitalist, right? Uh, I think capitalism is the economic equivalent of evolution. It is a competitive system. It is a brutal system, but it's a system that works. Same with evolution. It's a competitive system. It's a brutal system, as anyone who's watching the nature show, but it works. But at the same time, we're now entering an era of technology where uh, we are entering massive abundance. I can create iPhones and Android phones all day long for 50 bucks a pop and put supercomputers in people's pockets. And we can probably create infinite food and infinite housing over the next 100 years. But at the same time, we're also creating weaponry that is yes. unimaginably powerful. We're going to have bumblebee-sized drones with GPS and face tracking that can fly up people's nostrils and blow up. I mean, so it's, assassination is going to become really easy. Nuclear weapons, I mean, that proliferation is out of control. So we're also increasing the destructive power of the human species without bound as we, as we get better and better with technology and science. So this is exactly what Goethe referred to in Faust. It is the Faustian bargain with the devil. It's the Adam and Eve apple story. You bite the tree from the, you bite the apple from the fruit of knowledge, and guess what? You fall out of paradise. It's literally written into our oldest legends. So I think as a human species, we have to figure out how to evolve from our evolutionary and capitalistic origins, which are ingrained into our biology, into a more of a unitarian, not, I don't want to use the word communist because I'm not a communist, no. but more of a conscious society where we learn to live with each other. And every human at some point, not this generation, not, not, not anytime soon, but every human has to become a pacifist before one human can become a nihilist and end the world. So <clears throat> my politics are way out in left field. I'm extremely left and extremely right on certain things yeah. uh, in the classic context. No, but I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, it, it's, it's many contradictions, and, and yet it's not a jumble. You, you tie it all together. Let me ask you this. From your sort of orchestral view in the middle of AngelList and this ecosystem that's swirling around you, seeing all these companies forming and growing and scaling, etc., are you hopeful? Um, what? How do you? You know, what? What does this perch that you have? What insights does it? Oh, I'm, you I'm, into I'm, these I'm, questions. I am extremely hopeful. I think technology is doing beautiful things. Okay. Uh, you know, the founders that are coming up—they're conscious, they're hardworking. Uh, they have. They want to do more than just money. They're better people than I was when I was an entrepreneur because I was just too focused <laughs> on money. I think the new generation is far more conscious than I ever was, and it's good. You know, we, yeah. we should. Uh, I think it was Ben Franklin who said, like, you know, I want to study war and politics so that my children can study uh, business, so their children can study science, so their children can study art and music. Mm -hmm. Right. So right. every generation should be becoming more conscious. So that's a good trend line. The technology that we're building now is is going to make every material good so abundant and every service so abundant uh, that, you know, it's, uh, it's overall a great thing. Uh, and you can see like how Uber and, and Lyft and others are changing the whole transportation game. Self-driving cars are going to change the transportation game. Uh, electric cars, uh, you know, what Bitcoin is going to do for money and finance and for contract law and, you know, do it with legions of like lawyers and paperwork and wire transfers yes. and big banks. Um, so it, it, there's a lot to be hopeful for. Uh, I think there's a lot more to be hopeful for than to not be hopeful for. And social media is taking over the presidency. I know. This is the Twitter election. That's what people, you know, are not really fundamentally understanding. Yeah, there's Twitter, the company, but Twitter, the dream. Yeah. 
is huge. Twitter, the dream, is that for the first time in human history, one person can stand up and instantly broadcast anything to all of humanity before they're censored. That is unimaginable. That is unimaginable. Even 30 years ago, any any uh, revolutionary who was fired up about taking over the media should now be like, you know, embarrassed. So there's a great South Park episode. I, I forget, those guys are brilliant, but they were basically talking about something horrible was happening and they have to get the word out. So Stan and Kyle are like, okay, uh, I'm going to call the news. We're going to go and talk to the reporters. Okay, I'm going to write an article for the school newspaper. Okay, I'm going to rally a mob and we're going to get together and go to City Hall st- uh, steps. And Cartman says, oh, I tweeted it. <laughs> and then they all stop. He's like, oh, I got a thousand retweets. It's gone viral. It's trending. Right. <laughs> it's We're the number good. one hashtag. <laughs> right. right. So that is incredible. I mean, the mm-hmm. fact that technology has gotten us into a place now where literally everybody is a broadcaster all the time. And really, full credit to Jack Dorsey and Evan Williams and Noah and the whole team at Twitter for having invented that. Um, but, uh, you know, and you look at YouTube, anyone can broadcast. Uh, the reason I call my piece American Spring was because the Arab Spring was driven by technology, and the American Spring is no different. Yeah. Trump and Bernie Sanders are driven by technology, too. You take away Twitter, you take away Facebook, you take away crowdfunding, you would shut Bernie and Trump down tomorrow. But you cannot take those things away. The fastest way to have an actual physical revolution in the streets is try and take our phones away. That's the part the FBI doesn't understand when they're trying to push for backdoors and encryption. Encryption backdoors would actually destroy the tech industry. And you would have to violate freedom of speech because I can put an encryption code or algorithm on my, on my T-shirt. Right? How are you going to stop right, that? Right. Uh, and open source. So wh- where I think this eventually heads is I think we, through technology, businesses and innovation, we're going to build amazing things to help the world. Uh, you know, my, my co-founder, Nivi, always says startups are here to save the world. <laughs> he's even more messianic in that sense. Mm-hmm. But okay. I think he's right. But I think on a long, long time scale, now we're talking, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, <clears throat> I think what happens is more and more of these services will become open source. And right now, today, in the open source movement, we only have software. But if you go and you look at something like Blockstack, which is actually based out of New York, they're using BitTorrent and the blockchain and distributed file systems and encryption to build fully autonomous living services and pieces of code and platforms that are open. So imagine a piece of software that literally has a piece of code in there that hires engineers with bounties to reprogram itself, and it lives in a distributed file system encrypted across thousands of machines, and it pays in Bitcoin to stay alive and to get better, and it collects Bitcoin with a built-in business model. These distributed autonomous organizations are going to be the first AIs, but they're not going to be AIs in the sense that they pass the Turing test, but they're going to be AIs in the sense they're autonomous entities. They might be self-driving cars that work for themselves. So they drive around paying charging stations and charging you Bitcoin, and, and they're paying mechanics and getting repairs. So it's like, at what point do you start drawing a distinction between autonomy and intelligence? So we're going to have these kinds of entities emerging, and they're going to create wealth and abundance for all of humanity. The problem today is that it's just very unevenly distributed, very unevenly distributed, right? Because the people who are not technically literate are being left behind. So I actually think one of the greatest charitable things we can do today is is figure out how to retrain people to get comfortable with technology because the computer is the most powerful tool for creativity, the most powerful force multiplier invented since the stone axe 
but where you don't need another human's permission to use it. Because every other tool that we've invented since that had a lot of impact and gave people leverage, like factories and printing press and all that, you needed other people to give you permission to use it. With technology, that's not true. So that's kind of how I reconcile, you know, what am I doing with AngelList? I'm trying to push the technology ball forward. And I'm trying to push it forward in the best way that I know how. And the best way that I know is by helping every great entrepreneur realize their dream. And I can't do it for all of them. And I can't do it manually. It doesn't scale. But I can build a platform and an infrastructure and a community that helps move it forward. Naval, absolutely stunning. So illuminating. So much fun. It's really a privilege. You're very kind, David. We'll have you back on next year. I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for letting me ramble on about all kinds of things. <laughs> it was thank you. Thank you, my friend. Be well. Show you around. Give you a taste of business, you know? 